Thank you for joining us for this episode of the IPI Policy Basics Podcast. Today's topic is, what is moral hazard? We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. With these IPI Policy Basics podcasts, we are building an audio library on basic policy concepts and topics for those who want to learn and understand how to think about policy or for those who need to get up to speed on a particular issue. And today we're going to talk about the concept of moral hazard, and I'll be joined today by our resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews. So what is moral hazard? If you pay attention to uh, the details of policy, uh, you've probably heard the phrase moral hazard, but you might not really understand completely what it means. It's more likely that you may have never heard the (laughs) phrase moral hazard before. Uh, But it's an important concept. It's the root of a lot of our troubles in public policy. And so let's see if we can come to understand the risks and problems associated with moral hazard. The idea of moral hazard comes from the insurance industry, and it's related to risk, and it's related to who takes risks and who bears the cost of the risks. Moral hazard is the idea that people and institutions alter their behavior in generally negative, irresponsible ways when the consequences of their risk or decisions is borne by someone else, when you don't have skin in the game, in other words. And Tom, we should probably point out that even though the term moral is in there, we're not necessarily talking about ethics. Uh, People think of morals as I do right and I do wrong and so forth. Moral hazard has more of an economic uh, connotation than it does somebody doing something right or wrong. Yeah, I I think that's right. Although I do think there's the idea, and we're going to get to this in a minute, of the idea of responsible versus irresponsible. Yes. You know, and and some might argue that that is moral or ethical. So one of the reasons that moral hazard can be such a problem is that incentives matter. People generally respond to incentives, economic incentives, social incentives, political incentives. And not always, but generally speaking, if you increase the reward for a behavior, people will engage in it more. If you increase the punishment for a behavior, people will engage in it less. There's this famous quote, and it's been attributed to lots of different people. It's been attributed to Benjamin Franklin, and it's been attributed to Thomas Jefferson. And I think, honestly, no one really knows where the quote originally comes from. But it says, A democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until the majority discovers it can vote itself largesse out of the public treasury. After that, the majority always votes for the candidate promising the most benefits. And, uh, you know, if you look around today at the political and policy world, you can say, yeah, we're probably just about there right now because people are, are seemingly able to vote themselves benefits without bearing any of the cost, without any apparently negative results from all of that additional spending. I mentioned earlier this idea of responsibility. The general idea is that people will take on more risk and not behave as responsibly if they know they are shielded from the consequences of their actions. Right. And let's talk a little bit about health insurance, since that's been one of the issues that come up. Mm -hmm. If you are, if health insurance insulates you from the cost, We know people tend to spend more, and they might even take less care of themselves. 
one of the things we used to talk about with what was called a medical savings account and then eventually became a health savings account was that people had an account with cash in the uh, in the bank that they could use for their routine and standard medical care. Not if you if you had to go if you had a major accident or illness and you were in the hospital, insurance kicked in. But the idea was you now have an economic incentive to try to live a little healthier lifestyle, uh, avoid certain types of risky behavior because you have to pay for this money out of your health savings account. It's out of your pocket, but it's in your health savings account. Mm-hmm. So it was an attempt to try to say, all of you who are out there saying people ought to be concerned about preventive care, they ought to be eating healthier and so forth, give them an economic reason right. to do that. Because if you completely cover them from all ba- their bad health care decisions, then they may end up uh, not adjusting their behavior accordingly. Right. And you you talked a lot about this during the debate over the ACA, over Obamacare, right? Because, right. because previously, to some degree at least, health insurance premiums were related to your health and your, and your behavior, right? Right. Maybe not for huge group policies, but like if you were a smoker, if you had high blood pressure, you were going to pay more. If you go out, right. If you go out buy life insurance, right. If you're buying like a a lot of life insurance, they'll want to give you a little bit of a medical exam first, Mm -hmm. right. To be able to figure out what the risk is. And so when the government comes along and says, you know what, everybody's going to pay the same premium, and no matter what their lifestyle is, no matter what their choices are. I mean, it seems like a wonderful thing because it's okay. So I'm not going to be punished anymore for pre-existing conditions. Right. But it also removes the incentive. You don't get, you don't get lower rates for a healthier lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Right. So that also strikes me as a form of moral hazard. Right. And, and there's another thing we could point out, uh, because we were talking a minute ago about moral hazard doesn't, ne- doesn't necessarily mean morality, but mm-hmm. it can be related to it. Sure. For instance, I recall when the uh, birth control pill came out and became popular, people said, ah, now women have the ability to be able to engage in sex without worrying so much about becoming pregnant, mm-hmm. and that's liable to increase the sexual activity that was going on. And, you know, you, I, I don't want to say anything about that part right, of it, right. but, <laughs> but it, you, you understand how that becomes a moral hazard if I don't have to worry about having a child. Right. With the birth control pill, it does create a type of moral hazard there. You are insulating someone from the natural consequences of their action. Right. right? And and that does lend toward people or businesses or institutions acting in, in riskier ways. While, let's keep talking about insurance for, for a while. We talked about earlier that that's where this concept originally comes from. Uh, this is one of the reasons why insurance policies have deductibles, mm-hmm. right? It's It's to prevent you from essentially abusing the insurance policy and taking advantage of the policy. It's also one of the reasons why, like if you're selling fire insurance to a tenant or something, uh, they may very well do a little bit of a credit report. They may pull a credit report on you, find out what kind of person you are because they don't want to sell fire insurance to a kind of guy who's likely to burn his building down to collect on the insurance. Right. right? And that, that is sort of the core idea or the core origin anywhere of moral hazard is that kind of thing, making sure that insurance companies have built-in mechanisms to protect them from that sort of abuse of insurance policy. You know, one of the things that's happened over the past several years is the credit card companies will now, if somebody uh, hacks your account, gets gets your card number and starts spending it, they essentially will step in and make you whole. Mm -hmm. Uh, I appreciate that. It's happened to me a few times, and so I'm glad that happens. That said... It might make me a little less 
conscious about making sure my credit card is not being handed to somebody else, isn't in the reach of somebody else, that number, you know, changing my password and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just might make me a little less concerned about it because I'm going to be protected if something happens to it. That's exactly right. And so we, we've, we've talked about a couple examples that are not government related, but I really do think that most of the time when we run into this issue of moral hazard, it's almost always some government policy that is insulating people from the consequences of their behavior, right? Whether it is, you know, health insurance can no longer gauge you based on your risk, right? Or, you know, the other example strikes me is there have always been people out there who think just credit ratings themselves are not fair, you know, because it cuts off certain people from access to credit or access to mortgages and things. Mm-hmm. And it would, it would never shock me these days for the government to come along and, and just have some sort of a law to where you, you can't do credit ratings anymore. Right. Cause that's not fair. That discourages, you know, low income people cuts off their access to credit, whatever. And that of course would be a huge example of moral hazard because if you can get the same amount of credit that I can, even though you're a greater credit risk, um, that may be a boon to you, but it's a harm to the overall system. And one of the themes I think we ought to talk about is that one of the problems with moral hazard is that it raises costs overall, whether it's in health insurance or life insurance or anything like that. That mm-hmm. if you allow a significant degree of moral hazard, you're going to increase costs overall. It reminds me of the the example that we always hear about about government subsidized flood insurance, right? Right. So you, you've got this very Which low Florida cost. Florida did. Yeah. So you've got this, you, you've got this luxurious beachfront house and you've got low cost subsidized, you know, flood insurance. I, I think it's John Stossel, the former ABC news uh, reporter who says that the, the government rebuilt his beachfront house four or five times. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, so, so if the government is going to insulate me from the risks and costs of having a beachfront house like that, then sure, I'm going to let them rebuild my house four or five or six times. And it's actually worse than that because the government reimbursing them, they keep putting those dwellings, hotels and and, uh, Mm -hmm. apartment buildings and so forth, closer to the beach. They want to be right on the beach, which is a dangerous place to be and a place that gets a lot of hurricanes. And yet, if the government's going to um, essentially make you whole, reimburse you, uh, absorb most of the cost, then why not put it right there? And then what the carryover effect is, when a hurricane hits, the costs go way up, and then that gets climate change people saying, ah, see, right. that's because climate change is going to cost us so much. No, it's because people behave and do things based upon the insurance. They're moving in, and they're doing risk. They're engaging in riskier behavior because they're insulated from the cost. That's exactly right. And, and what I think is interesting about the, about the flood insurance problem, it's such a perfect example of moral hazard because the reason that there is government-subsidized flood insurance in the first place is that if there weren't, it would be really expensive, right? Right. But it should be really expensive. <laughs> you know, if you're going to build a beachfront house in a hurricane zone, it ought to cost you an arm and a leg to get flood insurance. Mm-hmm. That's the market accurately pricing the risk. So government comes along and says, "Well, we're going to do this. We're going to do this favor for people. We're going to subsidize flood insurance." Okay, and that's where the moral hazard comes from. Now you've come in, you've created an economic distortion. And you're actually encouraging more risky behavior because you have insulated people who live on the coast 
from the real cost of living on the coast. And when the costs go up, the government sort of throws up his hand and, and they act like they don't know understand why that happened. Another, I think, terrific example of moral hazard, and again, when you start looking for it, you find it everywhere, is, of course, the notorious uh, example a few years ago of the government bailing out the failed banks, mm-hmm. right? So the banks had taken a pretty careless attitude toward buying these subprime mortgages and packaging them together and selling them. Uh, in fact, the real moral hazard in that whole chain, I think, sort of started with the mortgage companies themselves. Mm-hmm. Because the moment they would sell a mortgage, they would just sell it to a bank. So they got all the economic benefit of, of selling a mortgage to a customer, but then they didn't bear any of the risks if, if the mortgage went under. And they had no incentive to make sure that the person taking out the mortgage could afford to pay it back. Because they just they immediately, like in minutes, transferred the risk to someone else. And, and, I because, say, and because everyone along the chain was able to just keep passing the risk along before you knew it, you had these big banks who had, who had taken on all this risk and either didn't know it or didn't care, but either way, they weren't doing their jobs. And in some cases, they thought it was supposed to be good risk because we actually had some experience and mm-hmm. there was somebody buying a house 15 years ago. And they, I think we sold the house two or three times to people who just couldn't qualify. And you got the sense that the, the real estate people were pushing this. Some of the mortgage people were trying to push it. They were trying to get people who really weren't able to afford the house to get into the house because they they were going to pass that on to somebody else and the government ultimately uh, handle it. And I would argue that within the bank defaults, as they were struggling in that financial crisis that we had in 2007, 2008, 2009, uh, the moral hazard came after the fact. I don't know that the banks yeah. all knew they were going to get bailed out going in. Right. But once the economy started collapsing, the bank said, oh, my goodness, you've got to come bail us out of this thing or we're going to shut down. And the government did. Right. And that's where the phrase too big to fail came from. Right. right? And, and, and you had a lot of people understandably saying, wait a minute, these bankers were taking huge amounts of money. They were taking huge salaries and bonuses and so forth. Mm-hmm. And they were doing this. And yet when it came to... When push came to shove and things went bad, the government stepped in with taxpayer dollars and saved them. So you're enjoying all of the upside of the business you're in, but then you're you're shielded by the government from the downside risks. Right. Right. And there's an expression that it talks about, like socializing the risks. Right. Uh, I get to keep the big high commissions I made selling all those securities. You're personalizing the profit and socializing, socializing the, risk. the risk. Right. And so, you know, I got to keep all my bonuses and I got to keep my high salary and I got to keep all of that, even though arguably I failed to do my job properly. Mm -hmm. Right. And then the government comes along and bails you out. So, I mean, there's moral hazard all along in that chain. There is the moral hazard of the mortgage companies who just didn't do their jobs and just passed along the risk. There's the moral hazard of the credit rating agencies Mm -hmm. who apparently didn't do their job. And then as you point out, there's the moral hazard that's created on the back end when the government bails out the banks, because that sends a very clear message that we did it once and we'll do it again. Yes. So if anything, bailing out those banks just gave them an additional reason to take on more unnecessary risk because they know they'll get bailed out again in the future. And let's don't stop with banks because a lot of public sector pensions have wasted their money and they're in huge struggles in Illinois and California and others. They're they're Mm -hmm. way underfunded. And in the $1.9 trillion relief package that came out, 
we were essentially bailing out those uh, those pensions. Right. And many of those pensions made bad investment decisions. They paid themselves well. Yep. They did a lot of things that they shouldn't have done. And they, and, and in addition, they assumed huge amounts of interest. I mean, they, they assumed that the money would grow much faster than it actually would mm-hmm. so that they their members didn't have to put as much in. And so many of them were underfunded. And one of the Democrats' things they did in that $1.9 trillion was bail out a lot of those public pension plans. Speaking of bailing out today, we have a very vigorous discussion going on about forgiving student loan debt. Yes. Right? And I think we're all somewhere on the scale of sympathetic to students who have got huge amounts of debt that they're struggling to repay. Uh, but there's a lot of moral hazard involved in here, too. I think a good example of moral hazard is the federal government offering low-cost subsidized loans so that anybody can go to college. Um, in a normal working market, there would not be huge incentives for you to go to college for four years, spend $160,000 to get a degree in art history. There might be incentive to do that to get a degree in computer science or engineering, something that pays a high salary. But with all of the subsidized money that's available to students, you can go to an elite college, you can spend an enormous amount of money, you can party for four years and get a degree that's somewhere near worthless. And it's all made possible because of government subsidized loans and other government programs that, that frankly make it easier to go to college than it really ought to be. And so course, I think that's an example of moral hazard as well. And of course, it's not. It may not stop there because Democrats want to move legislation, which would essentially pay off a lot exactly. of the, a lot of the loans. Exactly. Now this is again an after the fact moral hazard. Mm-hmm. But if you're just getting ready to go to college in the next few years and you see the government has just paid off these people's loans, then you have an, a certain economic incentive, a certain reason for saying, if I go and borrow a whole bunch of money in order to go to college. I'll be fine because sometime down the line, they're going to step up and they'll say, this is terrible. We can't let this happen. And they'll bail me out. There'll be some kind of amnesty. Exactly. Um, and I think most people, when they, when they hear this, just this idea of, well, we're just going to forgive people's student loan debt or whatever. I think most people have an inherent sense that, oh, that can't be right. That can't be right. Well, the, the specific policy reason why that's a bad idea is moral hazard. Because if you're going to come along and if you're going to insulate them from the consequences of their poor choices and their poor decisions, you're going to encourage more future such bad behavior and poor decision-making by other people in the future under the assumption that they'll get their debt forgiven too. Right. And, and the responsible decision without all that the student loan debt there would be to do what you and I did, at least what I did. Mm-hmm. I didn't borrow a dime going through my undergraduate right. master's and PhD. Right. I worked full time most of that time in order to be able to get through uh, and had to take some less expensive colleges in order to be able to do it. So you, you don't, I've, I've actually heard people say, how am I supposed to go to college unless the government pays for me to go? Right. Right. Uh, you do it like the rest well, of us did. Well, you, you and I in particular are not going to be very sympathetic to that argument, but it really is interesting because back when you and I went to college, there weren't a ton of government programs and subsidized no. loans. And college became dramatically more expensive, I would argue, mm-hmm. primarily because of the availability of free and easy money. I think there's evidence for that. So you you have like a bubble in college tuition, just like you had a bubble in the mortgage market, right? Just because of of, of low interest rates and the abundance of cheap, easy money. 
but because of the government, because of government policy. So I am sympathetic to, um, to young people today who, who probably can't do it the way we did it because of how expensive it is. But as you point out, they don't even have an incentive to look for a place that they can afford, you know, or say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to go get a welding certificate, you know, and I'm going to go to junior college or something instead of going to a four-year liberal arts school to get a degree in art history or something like that. There are other, like I said, the more you think about it, the more you find moral hazard everywhere. There's a lot more different kinds of examples of this, for instance, uh, on welfare in the welfare mm -hmm. system, right? Um, if you're going to create a system that says, uh, we will give you more welfare benefits, the more children you have, and, uh, we are going to give more money to a single parent home than to a home with both a father and a mother in it. Guess what? We saw the explosion of the welfare rolls. The single mother. That's exactly right. The, there's a moral hazard in essentially the government subsidizing, uh, single parenthood, uh, people having more children than they can afford given their situation in life. And so many of these programs are driven by human compassion and human sympathy. You know, we want to do something to help people. But th the flip side of that is you're creating a moral hazard when you do that so many times. You know, and, and the, the moral hazard sometimes isn't immediately obvious. So if you create a system in which single mothers get more money, but they lose that money if they get married, you create an incentive for the boyfriend not to get married mm -hmm. to the woman, but to just live. But now the boyfriend has not got a, has not made a commitment. And so the boyfriend gets mad or wants to go someplace else. The boyfriend, he doesn't have to go through divorce. He just has to walk out of the apartment or house. So there's a number of contingent things here that just create a worse society, not just if I have more children, I get more money. It creates disincentives all the way down the line. There's another example of moral hazard that I want to touch, and that is the issue of qualified immunity. We have a legal doctrine in this country right now that functions to shield government officials from legal culpability when they do wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, this is how so many times uh, district attorneys who you know, pursue cases that they know to not be legitimate and who hide evidence and all this kind of stuff, right? And then when all that's found out, they can't be sued. They can't be, or it's very, very difficult to sue them. Same thing with police who are abusive. When you have police violence and things like that, uh, you know, in the middle of the night, they bash in a door, they shoot a dog, they drag your kids out, they blindfold you and zip tie your hands. And then it turns out it was the wrong house, right? In so many of those kind of cases, the victims have no recourse because of this thing called qualified immunity. Mm -hmm. So, in my view, qualified immunity is also a moral hazard because if you're a government employee, if you're a government official, and you know you really can't be held liable for bad decisions and for abusive behavior, that's an incentive to take more risks and to engage in more abusive behavior and not behave as responsibly as you would have if you knew that you could be sued or if you knew that you could go to jail. And we'll see if that happens with uh, Governor Cuomo in New York, right? because he made some bad decisions with regard to seniors in nursing homes mm -hmm. and thousands of seniors died from COVID. And my guess is it won't, he won't be, he could have a civil suit, but he won't, there won't be a criminal suit. It was negligent behavior, but he, uh, you know, he's, he's essentially protected from that. 
we, you run into this issue of qualified immunity with, with politicians like Cuomo. You run into it with like law enforcement and things like that. You even run into it with just bureaucrats, mm-hmm. just bureaucrats sitting behind a desk who knowingly break a law or who knowingly use their office for personal gain. And it's like the only penalty they ever bear is like being forced to retire. And we saw you know, all that with Lois Lerner at the IRS exactly a few right. years ago. Exactly right. We saw it. I didn't, can't remember that. But the FBI uh, agent who changed a document and, and lied to the FISA court right. about it. Uh, and none of them actually, I don't think, are really going to suffer anything other than time to retire right. and take and take your pension take and go. Take that big fat pension. Boy, that's, that's pretty bad. Pun- if that's the punishment, I think I can take it. So, again, to go back and, and sort of review, incentives matter. And... You create moral hazard when you give people bad incentives or when you insulate them from incentives, when you insulate them from the consequences of their behavior, when you create a system that rewards irresponsibility rather than encourages responsibility, uh, when you don't penalize people for bad behavior, and when you don't reward people for good behavior. And this, I think, is one of the the chief differences between the left and the right, the right can be, uh, can, can make mistakes as well. But in almost all pieces of legislation, we look at it and say, what can go wrong here? Mm-hmm. What can go wrong? And, and you'll have this, you see this on voting reform right now. So the right's looking at some of the voting reform proposals out there coming from Democrats. And we say, you know, you create some incentives. It, 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 there may not be a lot of voting fraud right now, but if you set up a structure where people can do it almost without any real reverberations or, or pushback on it, then you're going to create incentive for people to engage in more voter fraud mm-hmm. just because of the way you set up the law. So I just, one of the key aspects if, in my opinion of conservatives and economic policy people is asking what do these incentives do, as you suggest, what kind of behavior does that encourage and is that the right kind of is that the kind of behavior we want to encourage? Right. Is not there, that it's it's not this rampant now, but if you set up the incentive, it may be afterwards. That's right. So, is there a way to solve this problem that does not create moral hazard? Right. It's going to cause new problems in the future. So, in the policy world, when we look at a new proposal, a new proposed law, or benefit, or program, or something like that, one of the criteria that should always be used is to look at the proposal and say, does this create moral hazard in any way? Is this going to create new problems down the road through moral hazard to where the problem we're trying to solve today actually morphs into a bigger or different problem in the future? And it's also true that when we look at something in government that isn't working, one of the questions we should be asking is, is the reason this isn't working or is the reason something is going terribly wrong here that there's some moral hazard that's being created by some policy? And that's what we need to do. We need to drill down and identify it and do the best we can do to remove the moral hazard. Okay, so that's our IPI Policy Basics podcast on moral hazard. I hope it was interesting. I hope you learned something. And as we said, uh, the more you come to understand the idea of moral hazard, the more you will see it all around you in almost every government program, in almost every politician's exciting new plan to solve some problem. There's almost always some moral hazard, or potential moral hazard at least, buried in there somewhere. Well, thank you for joining us for today's IPI Policy Basics podcast. You can find a lot more information on policy analysis on a number of different issues at our website, 
at IPI.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about telling other people about it? And we would also love it if you could give us a positive review on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use. So thank you for joining us and we will see you next time.